Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and we are off and running in 2019. This is our second episode of the year now, and it actually marks in a little bit of a milestone for us here at the show, the 50th time that we have done this podcast, a little bit of history, and uh, you can send your gifts to me, uh, just DM me, and I'll I'll send you my address, and you can send all your gifts here to me in Chicago. I, I believe the 50th podcast is the golden podcast. So I don't want any uh, rinky-dink gifts. You, you got to give me the good stuff because this is the 50th. Um, is that not how this works? I'm, I'm looking around for a clarification, and I realize that I'm in the studio by myself. My guest today is a returnee to the podcast, and, and he returns home to the podcast a winner. The recipient, in fact, of the 2018 Casey Award for the Best Baseball Book of the Year. And that was actually an honor that was just announced this week, and unfortunately it came just a few days after we had taped the episode. So please don't think that I'm being a dick when I don't congratulate him uh, on the great achievement that he just was awarded. I'm going to do that right now. Uh, My congrats to Rob Nyer on a very well-deserved accolade. And with that, let's go to the tape, as they used to say, as I talked to Rob on this very hotline very recently. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, one of the finest baseball writers of his generation, and his latest book is Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game, Rob Nyer. Rob, how are you doing? Ricky, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a it's a pleasure to have you on. the The new book is is, is tremendous, and I I want to get to that momentarily. But since you were last on the podcast, I believe around a year ago, you have uh, been named the commissioner of the West Coast League. So you got to tell me what's it like being a baseball commissioner. Uh, well, that that could be a couple of long interviews. Actually, the the story's gone and on. You some people might guess. Well, it's just a uh, just a college summer baseball, a couple of months, no big deal. Well, it's amazing what happens behind the scenes of, of even a, a, a relatively, I shouldn't use the word obscure, uh, but uh, not a league that that most people outside the Pacific Northwest probably know much about. Um, but it, it really is amazing. You, look, you have uh, 11 teams last year, now 12 in this upcoming year, uh, upcoming season, uh, and you, so you have uh, eleven or twelve completely different situations with different personalities and players, and obviously coaches, and 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 uh, it, it just it, it's far more involved than I had any inkling of going into it. Um, of course, I have no experience in this sort of thing, or had no experience, so it's all been new and eye-opening and exciting and. Uh, sometimes exasperating, um, but I'm really, really excited about uh, season two. Do, does this mean that you give a little bit more rope to, to Rob Manfred N- now? Now that you know what what goes uh, with the job, or 
No, I don't <laughs> think so. I really, I, I, I can't say that, that I do. Um, because I actually had a pretty good sense of what that job is like, having read many books over the years by and, and about uh, MLB commissioners. Um, uh, and so I, I guess what I didn't realize was how much my job would be like his job. And look, I, I don't mean to inflate my my own importance or, or, or anything like that, but I think a lot of the dynamics are the same simply because it's you're dealing with, with, with so many different people, different sorts of people, just as he is. Um, but I, I sort of knew that. I just, I didn't realize that, that, I think I had a good idea for how hard his job is. I don't think I had a good idea for how hard my job would be. So <laughs> it's sort of a different, different question. Well, well, I got to tell you, the the, the job that that, that I want to focus on today is the terrific job that you've done with this with this book, Powerball, um, a fantastic read, and I, I got to say, some of your finest work as a guy who who uh, owns uh, multiple uh, Rob Nyer books, I, I've got to put it right up there with with anything that you've done. H- how did you decide that this was the right project for you at, at this time, and and what went into the decision? Uh, to, to write this book because what you've done here is um, if not entirely unique you, you've done something that is a, a different spin on, on how to write a baseball book well I'll, I'll be completely frank about this uh, now that we're, now that it's been more than a year since um, I started writing I've sort of gotten over the the, the embarrassment to whatever degree that, that existed uh, a year and a half ago uh, I had well Roughly a year and a half ago, I had pitched two book projects. I should say my agent had pitched two books uh, that I was really excited about, that I thought that I really wanted to work on, that I thought had uh, at least a decent shots at getting published and, and, and being commercial successes. Um, and I, I needed something like that um, because I wasn't uh, working full time as a baseball writer anymore. Um, uh, once I left. Um, uh, uh, Fox three years ago now, I guess. Um, uh, I freelanced some and, and did a few things here and there, but I needed a project um, or a full-time job. And um, I thought one of these book ideas that I had, uh, one was about um, uh, baseball's westward expansion in the 1950s and 60s, um, and, then an, and, and, and another book uh, about Michael Jordan's uh, season as a baseball player, a year as a baseball player, basically. Um, I thought one of those was going to be that project, and my agent pitched them, and we, we had meetings, and um, they j- just didn't happen. Uh, and I was pretty down about the whole thing. Uh, uh, I literally sent my agent a note saying, you've been great, really appreciate all you've done for me, but I think uh, I don't think this book thing is going to work out for me. I think I need to focus on something something else, whatever that might be. And literally, I, I think it might have actually happened while my note to him was still in the mail, because I mailed him an actual physical <laughs> card, um, as I do sometimes. Um, I think while, my, while that was in the mail, uh, <clears throat> my friend Jonah Carey, who I'm sure almost all of your listeners are familiar with. Of course. Uh, you probably had him on your show. I, ha- the I haven't yet, but I need to, I need to correct that. I'm going to make a note right now. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, Jonah, um, said that he'd been approached to work on a book and he, for whatever reason, I don't remember if I, if I even asked him 
didn't want to or wasn't able to work on that to do that book but he passed my name along because he thought I might want to do it and and uh, and that's how it happened um, I got on the phone list with this editor uh, Eric Nelson at, at Harper Collins and uh, he said Rob uh, I talked to Jonah and, and he I, I'm familiar with your work going way back and I think you might be the uh, the right person to write a basically a modern version of Dan Okren's book Nine Innings, which of course I was a huge admirer of when it came out thirty some years ago, and still am. I love Dan's work. Um, so, getting back to your, one of your questions, which was why did I think I, I want to do this book? It, it, for me, it was a natural. It never would have occurred to me to do a book that it was modeled on something someone else had done because my brain just doesn't work that way. But if someone for someone to come to me and say, um, I love Dan Oakland's book, um, and I think that you could do us something similar, um, that I, I didn't have to think about it for 10 seconds before saying, yeah, I'd love to, let, let's talk about this. And I think within a week or two, we actually had hammered out a plan for the book and an actual contract, which is sort of, that's like a, does, things don't happen that quickly, uh, usually. But uh, my editor had a vision and my, I think my vision was roughly the same as his, and, and we got it done. And it had to happen quickly because this was the fall of 2017, and we wanted the book to come out in the fall of 2018. So, so we had to move quickly, and, and I had to write quickly. So the concept for, for the, the uninitiated here in our audience is you took a regular season September game between the Astros and the A's, I believe September 8th it was at the Coliseum in Oakland. And then you you use that game to not only tell the story of the strategy and events of the game, but to really weave a story about what's going on with baseball today here in the in the 21st century, the modern game. Uh, and, and you and you do it very skillfully. How do how do you approach that? Because I'm a fan of, of, of Okrant's book uh, a, as well and, and read that when I was a kid for the first time years and years ago and, and refer back to it uh, occasionally. Um, even taking that concept, how did you determine what twists and turns you wanted to take in terms of having that textured story that really gets into the, the modern game of baseball? Well, I... First of all, the, the there was one massive difference. There were two big differences between between my book and Dan's book. One is that we're just completely different sorts of writers, um, or at least I'm a different sort of writer now than Dan was in in the early '80s when he when he wrote that book. Um, and certainly, he's become, a, in my opinion, a much, even a better writer since then. So he he's tremendous. Um, if he hasn't won a national book award, he he should win one at some point. That's how good he is. Um, and I certainly aspire to that sort of thing, but I can't claim to have uh, Dan's skill. Um, so that's one difference. The other difference is that Dan spent roughly three years reporting, researching his book before he even attended the game he wrote about. Um, and then he spent another year or so after that working on it. Uh, it was a four or five year process. Um, uh, for me, it was more of it was more like a six month process. Um, Dan went to the game um, that he wrote about. I didn't have that luxury. I simply didn't have the time uh, to, to to go to enough games where one of them would have been worth writing about. So 
we chose during the season chose a game that had already happened in that season, and then uh, I think I guess before uh, we chose the game, I made a list of twenty five things. That was sort of my pitch to my editor. Um, I didn't write a, a, a formal book proposal as we usually do. Um, I essentially just sent him a list of, of of things that I think I thought should be in a book like this. Uh, things, you know, elements of today's game that that needed to be in there um, and then we found the game uh, my editor basically found that he found two or three games I guess I think it was three and said which of these do you think would be you'd like to write about and I chose this particular game and then I, I watched that game over and over again uh, with different audio feeds so I could sort of get a sense for what the broadcasters were saying about it um, uh, four different audio feeds, both radio, both TV broadcasts. Um, and then it was basically a, it was a puzzle. Okay, I know I want to write about this. Where in this, these nine innings, where does this subject fit? Uh, where does it fit best what's happening on the field? Um, and I, I was able to weave in almost everything that I wanted to write about. There were a few things that just, I just ran out of time or space and, I, I wrote very little, for example, if anything, about how the role of manager has changed in the last few decades. Uh, and that's a that's a rich subject, and I hardly touched on it at all. That's probably my biggest regret about the book. But but I was able to weave in almost everything else um, by the end. And you know, at some point, you just have to stop writing. <laughs> well, I well I can tell you there's a, there's more things that I want to talk about from the book uh, that, than we have time to discuss today. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pick and choose uh, uh, some things here, and and one of the things that I want to start with is just the the incredible wealth of data that is available now, and and oftentimes that data may be more than the casual fan is prepared to digest. Uh, it, spin rate, launch angle, exit velocity, all the various metrics that uh, that you can uh, go, go to fan graphs or, or somewhere like that and, and look at and that may be alien to, uh, to, to older fans or fans that just aren't inclined to go to those types of websites and whatnot. One... How are teams today using this data? And I'm, and I'm sure they've also got their own proprietary data as well. How are they using this to their advantage? And, and secondly, how can Joe Fan cherry pick a few nuggets here and there from these metrics, even if he's a little intimidated, uh, in, in order to enhance uh, his own enjoyment uh, of a baseball game? Well, the second question is much easier to answer, I think. Uh, let me let me touch on that one first. Um, I think that that it's it's a fantastic time to be a fan because you have so many options. Uh, when you and I were kids, we didn't have anything. We had the box scores. Oftentimes, not until the evening paper, depending on where the game was played. Right? Yeah. Um, and then, if you wanted to, you know, if you if you could track down the sporting news. Um, you could see what was happening in the minor leagues two weeks after the fact, or whatever it was. Uh, that was it. Uh, now everything is out there. Um, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin, though, to say to, to tell. Every fan has their own interests, and if a fan is interested in launch angle, um, it's out there. If they're interested in um, sprint speed, that, that's to, for me. It's it's the it's the basic things that are 
interesting because we didn't have it before. And uh, Sprint Speed, for example, um, it's it's available now on uh, MLB Savant. I might be getting the, the name wrong of the of the. It's it's on MLB.com. Uh, Darren Wellman is a, a wizard with his stuff. Um, you know, a basic question like, who's the fastest catcher in baseball? Well, five years ago, we would have zero idea, really. We, I shouldn't say zero. We, we would have an, an idea because people would say, well, this guy's pretty fast for a catcher, or this catcher has more triples and steals than anybody else. Okay, that's fine. Now we know exactly who the fastest catcher is and who the slowest catcher is. We know that Albert Pujols is among the very slowest players in all of baseball, including catchers. Um, uh, those sorts of things, to me, are fascinating, um, if only because they're new. Uh, these are questions we would love to have had the answers for five, let alone 20 or 30 years ago, and now we have answers. Um, uh, so I guess the tricky thing for a fan who isn't immersed in these sorts of things is, where do I go? Um, and I, I think MLB Savant or Baseball Savant is a great place to start just to see some very basic things like like who has the uh, uh, highest launch angles or who has the uh, highest percentage of hard hit balls, uh, who's the fastest, who's the slowest, that sort of I love that stuff. Basic information. And, you can, and then you can do all sorts of fun things with it. With, 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 with it. Um, and obviously... Uh, Fangraphs and BaseballReference.com are tremendous resources. And I guess what I would say is that you know, uh, 30 years ago, <clears throat> 40 actually, uh, Bill James would talk about. He, what Bill James would, all, would say that his success in the marketplace wasn't because he was doing anything truly radical. He was asking the same questions that everybody else was asking. He was just coming up with different ways to answer them. And Bill was the only one because he was actually going out and finding the data, uh, which most people didn't have the, the time or the resources to do. He was getting it, and, he was at, and then he was answering these questions in different ways. Uh, now we can all do that. You want to know who the fastest shortstop is? Um, who's the best at turning the pivot at second base? All these things. You can go find all this information. Um, so just what I would say to any any fan, if you have a question, just go look. The answer's probably out there. Now, the teams have far more data than that, and they're, they're asking all sorts of questions that, that mo wouldn't occur to most of us. Um, and I, I think that one thing that, uh, for me, is missing is this connection that existed 20 years ago between what fans were asking and what teams were asking. Well, teams aren't asking the questions that fans are asking because teams have already answered them. So they're asking all these other questions um, that only they, for the most part, only they can answer because only they have the uh, all this other data that that we're not seeing. And they also have some, uh, some teams, anyway, are uh, spending immense amounts of time and money on answering them with with supercomputers and huge analytic staffs and um, there is now a real disconnect uh, that simply didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago between the sort of analysis that teams can do and the sort of analysis that the rest of us can do. 
So let's take uh, say say that you or I are the GM of a major league team and a team that has been investing resources into answering these difficult questions. Let's say fielding, for instance, which has been the one that lags behind in terms of our certainty of knowing exactly how good someone is relative to to batting or pitching, uh, at least. Like, how certain is the general manager of Major League Team X about how good fielders are relative to one another in in 2019? Uh, I would say that it depends on the team, because some teams lag lag fairly far behind, actually, in using all these numbers. All you have to do is look at the, go to the masthead or the the front office um, staff, which you can find on the internet or on MLB.com. Every team lists their front office staff. And if you see a team that has three or only three or four people who seem to be working in analytics, they probably don't know a whole lot or not as much as they should. Um, they're probably not that sure, but I can almost guarantee you that the, the Dodgers or, or the Red Sox or the Rays, a number of other teams, uh, I, um, they are 95% confident, if not more, in their internal fielding metrics because they know on every single play exactly what happened with every moving object, with every fielder. They know, first of all, they know where the ball was pitched. They know exactly where it was hit, how hard it was hit. They know how long it took the fielder to uh, start moving. Um, they know exactly how long it took him to get to the spot where the ball landed or where he fielded the ball. Um, they know all of it. Um, they know all we see on TV is the the um, what do they call that the um, you know the, the 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 speed of the fielder and the distance, which is but that we don't see any we don't have any context on TV. We don't know how good that is. Um, and we also don't typically know how long it took the fielder to get his jump, which is key, obviously. Um, but the, the teams who, who are devoting any resources at all to the data, they have all that information. So if they, if they care, they can know almost exactly how good every fielder is. There's, there's very little guesswork involved at all. Well, speaking of fielding, let's talk about the thing that has been on everybody's mind at one time or another over the course of the last several years, and, and that's the shift. And and you go into uh, uh, quite a, discuss, a discussion of the shift, and I believe that between t- uh, 2011 and 2016, we saw somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of about a 1,200% increase in the use of the shift. That's about... 25,000 plus more shifts in 2016 than there than there were in 2011 and certainly as as you go into in the in the book the shift is is nothing new uh, it, it goes back uh, famously to to Ted Williams and and the shifts that were that were applied against uh, him with at least some frequency where do we where do we stand these days with the shift? Is it has it hit its crescendo here, and we're shifted about as much as as we're gonna shift, or is there room for more shifting? There's definitely room. Um, I know that uh, I wish I could remember 
who it was. Um, one of my colleagues out there on the internet, um, and a well-known colleague, uh, suggested a year or two ago that we had reached, perhaps reached peak, peak shift because it seemed to have leveled out. But then it went up again. It was up again. It was up in 2018. Um, we we haven't. There is more room. Uh, John Dewan at Sports Info Solutions suggests that you that there's plenty of room. And John's done more work, uh, at least in terms of external research, uh, public research, than anybody. Um, he thinks there's a lot more room. The teams could shift more. Um, the teams that shift them there because you have some teams that shift way more than some a few other teams. Well, those teams that are shifting a ton, they're probably on the right track. Now, there, there is one counterexample. The, the Cubs have sh- begun shifting less the last year or two. Um, and, of course, they're highly successful and have a high defensive efficiency rating, which is essentially the percentage of batted balls that are turned into outs. So there, there are different ways of approaching it, but it does seem that there is more room, especially as the hitters continue to not make that adjustment. And I write about this in the book, as you know. Um, I, I do believe that there are a fair number of hitters that pro- could and probably should be bunting to beat the shift more, much more often than they do. But there are counterarguments there, too. Bunting against when, when a guy is still 95 or 100 is not easy. Bunting with precision, anyway. So it's easy, to, it's easy for all of us to say, why don't they just bunt more? It's not clear that it's easy to do that, although I, I, I continue to think that with some work, uh, they could make that they could make it uh, improve their batting averages and maybe cut down some of the shifting. Until that happens, there is more room, and they're going to continue, as more teams look at more data, they're going to continue to put the fielders where the batter's probably going to hit the ball. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, speaking of trends that are continuing to go in a particular direction and and uh, we don't know where the uh, where the peak level may be, uh, you've got to ask sort of the same question about strikeouts. Uh, obviously, we're seeing more and more strikeouts uh, from season to season. It seems like a new record is, is set every year. I don't know what the what the numbers were 2018 relative to, to, to 2017. Um, is there is there anything on the horizon that is going to level off uh, strikeouts, or perhaps at some point maybe we'll see a modest decrease? point yes uh, but on the horizon no uh, absolutely not there there's not a single thing at least that I can that I've identified or that I've seen anyone identify suggesting that um, that trend is going to stop uh, the, the line on the graph I believe is simply going to keep moving up uh, there, there, I've People tell me sometimes, well, as you have more and more strikeouts, it will become it will make more and more sense for some team to adopt a a different a, a lower a, a sort of lower strikeout paradigm where they accumulate low strikeout hitters. And I, and I write about the Astros in the book; their strikeouts went way way down in 2017 from 2016. 2016, they were off the charts, and then they were. They were near the bottom of the league in strikeouts um, the very next year. It was not because the, their players uh, changed philosophy. It was because the, the players literally changed. Uh, 
they, 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 they dropped a bunch of high strikeout guys and replaced them with relatively low strikeout guys. Um, and I think to some degree that was purposeful. Um, you know, all other things being equal, you would rather not strike out. Um, you'd rather make contact and get more singles and get on base and all those neat things. Um, but the Astros still struck out a ton in 2017 relative to what teams did 20 years earlier. And the strikeout rate across the league goes up every year, as you suggest. Um, and it's driven by, obviously, two things. The pitcher's throwing a lot harder and the hitter's swinging harder. Um, it's not clear to me that cutting down your strikeouts is actually a good strategy because it might be you have to commit earlier and swing harder if you're going to be productive against these guys who routinely throw 95 to 100. So there's just, to me, the strikeouts aren't going to come down or even perhaps not even level off until something is done to limit the pitchers, um, which presumably means lowering the mound uh, because you're not going to somehow force pitchers to throw softer. Um, I think you lower the mound a few inches, you could cut the strikeout down or move the mound back a couple of inches, uh, six inches. I don't know how many it would take. These are all experimental questions or theoretical questions, but there are lots of things you could do to lower strikeouts. You could also change the strike zone, obviously. But it's not at all clear that there's any will in baseball to do any of those things. Well, one of the things that we really saw uh, happening in 2018 is teams taking notice and others uh, doing a, a little bit of copycat uh, of their own later in the season, the Oakland A's uh, among them, uh, of the, the concept of having an, an opening pitcher rather than a starting pitcher. Uh, what do you think of that strategy, and is that something that is going to prove to be more than a novelty going forward? I absolutely do not believe that it's a novelty. Um, I think it is the wave of the future. And not to suggest that starting pitchers, you know, traditional starting pitchers will be extinct, but for however many decades it's been now, uh, the idea was that you, in spring training, you identify four or more recently five um, pitchers who could give you six or seven or eight good innings every time out, or almost every time out. And it turns out, especially these days, I guess, that that there just aren't that many of those guys. So you'd see these, you'd see, you'd see fifth starter wasn't even really a job. A guy would get, be the fifth starter and make a few starts and then get hurt or get sent down. They bring up another guy and, and it's, it, 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 it turns out there just aren't that many of those to go around. I, I think part of that is due to pitchers throwing harder and getting tired sooner and not being able to give you seven good innings. Maybe some of these guys, some of these relief pitchers today, uh, 30 years ago, they would have been starters and they would have been pitching six or seven innings and throwing, 80, throwing 85 to 90 like guys used to do. Uh, and now they throw one inning and throw 95 to 100. Um, but the fact is that for a lot of teams, it, they look at their roster in spring training now, and they don't see five pitchers who can go out there every fifth day 
and pitch six innings. Maybe they have three of those guys or four. Uh, well, what do we do with the other the other days? And it, it, people have for years been suggesting that you just open your open the game with a with one of your relievers and let him go two or three innings and then go from there. And it really wasn't workable when you had a ten man pitching staff. Maybe not even an eleven man pitching staff. But when you have a twelve or now commonly thirteen man pitching staff, you can make that work. Maybe not every day, but Maybe day four and five, you, you can. And in fact, the Rays were incredibly successful with that for much of last season. Um, the A's, uh, by the end of the year, hardly even had a starter. Liam Hendricks started a big game for them, their, their, their wild card game, because they didn't have a starting pitcher. They trusted uh, a traditional starting pitcher. I'll be very surprised if we, if we don't see uh, a huge increase in the use of the opener uh, this season. And by the way, I think it's regrettable. I'm not one of those people who says, oh, we'll never have a 20-game winner again. This is so sad. That, that really doesn't bother me. But what the use of the opener means is, is, by definition, it means that you're going to see even more relief pitchers, most of whom throw really hard. And that means more strikeouts, um, I think. So it, it just sort of accelerates this process that we've been talking about, the trend of more strikeouts and and more more to the point, fewer batted balls in play, fewer fielders doing the things we like to watch fielders do, um, fewer exciting plays on the bases, all these things. The more strikeouts you have, the fewer of those other things you have, except for home runs. And I think that makes the game fundamentally less interesting. And that's really, that's the sort of the thrust of the the afterward in my book, which is that we're not heading down a path uh, of entertainment. We're heading down a path of, of accommodating the players, essentially, because they don't want change. Um, and that's, I think that's the biggest threat that baseball faces right now in the long term. Well, l- let's get into that, because that's a, a question that I was kind of saving for later, but there's no time like the present. I, I, <laughs> well, I, I, have, I, know. I, have a, I have a note here that says efficiency versus entertainment, um, I, because I do think that, and I think we have to be fair here, because people have accused your friend and mentor, Bill James, of sucking the fun out of baseball since you know since the 80s at least uh, and i've always called bullshit on those kind of uh criticisms of him frankly and i know that uh people have have said the same about you when particularly when you were uh, with espn and you were kind of at the vanguard of uh you know bringing sabermetric thought to the mainstream and i i always bristled when people would criticize james or your or, or yourself because the work that you guys were doing increased my knowledge and my enjoyment of the game. But I do feel now that maybe we are kind of getting to that crossroads of sorts between aesthetic enjoyment and best practices strategically. And I think in, in, in a lot of ways, that is, that's Rob Manfred's biggest question right now. How do you, where is the, where's the, the intersection at between entertainment, aesthetic appreciation of, of having just a fun game to watch, and you know, sort of the ruthless progression towards figuring out the best way to do something if you're if you're running a baseball team. I think it is the single biggest question that he faces. 
he'll punt. I, I don't think he'll answer it. I don't think he'll be commissioner long enough to answer it. At some point, I do believe it will need to be answered, but I don't think that that the problem is serious enough, um, and, I, and I say this if only because the baseball's revenues continue to increase. I don't think the problem seems serious enough to anyone at the top for real action to be taken. Um, I do think it'll happen someday, but next five, no. Next ten, maybe. I would also, and I'm very careful in the book to to, to um, make this argument. When I write about baseball in the book, I often write about it with a capital B. Um, and I use that to distinguish Major League Baseball from baseball, the sport, the game. And I don't typically say Major League Baseball because when when we say Major League Baseball, we, we are typically referencing the owners, essentially, in the commissioner's office. Um, but when we do that, we ignore the, the vast power that the Players Association has. So when I write about baseball in, in, in the book with a capital B, I'm not referring to Major League Baseball alone. I'm referring to Major League Baseball and the union because it's very difficult to do anything substantive, uh, anything fundamental in the game without the cooperation of the players. So I don't believe anything significant is going to change in until the players acknowledge that ever-increasing strikeouts is not ultimately good for the game and not good for revenues. I mean, it's easy to say, sure, revenues are up. Why would we change anything? Well, they might be up even more if we had an Ozzie Smith out there playing right now making a fantastic play every two or three games, uh, which we don't. Nobody realizes how good the best fielders are today because they don't get to display their, their skill as often as as they used to. Um, you know, there are lots of other issues, too. It's not just that. But baseball doesn't occupy the same place in the culture that it did when Ozzie Smith was was playing. But but I do believe that when you reduce the game to strikeouts and home runs, as it's been reduced for the most part, you, you lose something and you lose some fans. Um, I think. I could be wrong. Nobody really knows for sure. It's a very difficult thing to study. But uh, I, I do think that ultimately... Uh, not only the commissioner's office, but the players' association is going to have to have to acknowledge that this is not the best we have to offer. We could we could we could we could put on a better show. Now, how do we do that? And that's the question. I because I was thinking the other day. I, I don't even know if I'm going to renew my my MLB TV. And I, and I kind of paused and I was like, what, how is this even a question for me? And I, I think that some of these issues that we're discussing and, 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 and are a part of maybe my being a little bit ambivalent about how how much baseball I think I'm going to watch this coming year. Pace of play, uh, again, you address it in the book. Baseball games are considerably longer than they were when we were kids. Um, certainly there have been certain overtures made uh, to, to, to one degree of commitment or another try, uh, to trying to get something done. How do you feel about what Manfred has done up to this point? 
baseball with a capital B perhaps would would be a better way of, of addressing that question. And what, if anything, do you think will get done about pace of play in the coming years? Or do you think this is another one where we're just going to, um, you know, say something that sounds nice and the can will just continue to get kicked down the road for the foreseeable future? I think that a pitch clock with some teeth is a possibility because it's happened in the minors and it's worked it hasn't worked perfectly um, but it has helped speed up things in the minors a little bit and many of today's players well actually a great many probably a majority of today's major leaguers have, have, have played with a pitch clock because there's you know the shuttle back and forth between AAA and the majors is so busy now that um, probably ha- half the guys in the majors this season will have been in AAA in the last three or four years. Um, so um, I-, I think that's probably the most palatable, meaningful measure that we might actually see. And he's talked about it. They 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 they, they supposedly almost did it last year, but the players complained and so baseball said okay we won't do it but if you don't show any real progress in speeding things up this year we're going to do it next year well they didn't they didn't show any progress shockingly and so we'll see if if they carry through now um there seems to be this there's a whole other subject that i could rate that i could uh sound like a raving lunatic about which is uh, baseball writers rooting for a strike, but the fact is there there is some discord right now because the market free agents has been soft the last couple of winters, um, and that throws a little wrinkle into things. So uh, MLB might be particularly sensitive about the pitch clock or anything like it because of this other issue. You know, it all it all it's all part of the same the same puzzle, and you, you have to be careful, but. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if we saw pitch clock this year or next year. Um, but that's about it. I'm not sure there's much else that, that Manford is, is willing to, to do without, without the players' um, acquiescence. Well, let's talk free agency. Um, you know, you, you go into free agency some in the book. Are teams viewing that process differently in, in a meaningful way than they did even even 10 years ago in terms oh, less than 10 five absolutely and what are the changes what are the changes that you're observing in the in the way front offices are, are evolving on their approach to free agency well there are simply fewer teams willing to, to, to hand out uh, multi-year contracts for many millions of dollars um, and people will argue about why that's happened um, uh, it, it, on the face of it, it seems strange because the, the big argument that the, the, the rich teams are making is that we don't want to have to pay the luxury tax. Um, well, they can afford to pay the luxury tax. They're still going to make oodles of money even if they pay the luxury tax. So why do they care? And that's, that's not clear to me. Um, I do think that I make this argument, I don't remember if it's in the book or if I've written it someplace else, but I believe that there's a sort of peer pressure operating these days uh, where nobody wants to be the the owner or the general manager stuck with the, the Albert Pujols contract, right? Yeah. Uh, and get mocked unceasingly for year after year. 
Um, I certainly would want, wouldn't want to be the guy who gave him that contract. Um, and you know, that's uh, Ryan Howard. That's another one that we mocked forever, and deservedly so. We said it was a terrible contract when he got it, and it was. Um, it worked out that way. They don't all. I thought that um, that um, um, I'm forgetting his name now. Uh, Cruz with the Mariners. Um, oh not yeah, Mariners anymore. Yeah, sure, Nelson Cruz. Um, Nelson Cruz. I thought the Nelson Cruz contract was horrible when they gave it to him, and it was great. It was. It was. He was one of their best players all every year of that contract. Um, so they're not all bad, but enough of them have been bad and embarrassing that teams don't want to sign players to those sorts of deals anymore. And, and the funny thing is, for years we preached. People like me preached these don't work out. When you sign a player in his thirties to a six-year deal, you're going to regret it. And most of the time, they did. Now. What what has two things have changed? One, um, well, the, the one one big change has been that they're not giving players like Nelson Cruz those deals anymore. Not nearly as many of them, anyway. But what's been striking more recently is that even players in their twenties, who theoretically are just now peaking and and shouldn't have, be expected to, to collapse at some point in the next two or three or four years, they're having trouble getting those big contracts. As well, and and obviously, uh, Bryce Harper and Manny Machado not being signed is is the latest example. Um, uh, it, it's it's hard to figure exactly what's going on. People will have people started talking about collusion a year ago. There's no evidence of that. Um, I, I, maybe it's a gentleman's agreement where nobody talks about it. But if there were ever any evidence of collusion, it would cost the play the, the owners literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and they should all know the history uh, from the the late eight from thirty years ago. And I, I don't think that that's what's happening. I think something else is happening. It's having the same effect. Um, but um, I, I also, frankly, have a tough time feeling too bad about it. it why should I care if Yasmani Grandal gets three years and forty five million dollars, or one year and seventeen million dollars? It, it, to me, that that seems irrelevant on every level. To him, to me, to anybody who's paying attention. Um, it, it, if you want to get me worked up, you, you can ask me about uh, the pay for minor league players. That's who who people should be advocating for. Um, you know, but, but the notion that the players somehow are going are, are um, not going to be able to survive if if they get a one-year deal for $20 million as opposed to a three-year for 50 I, I just don't quite understand it. So I don't worry about it a whole lot, but a lot of my colleagues seem to. Well, you mentioned Machado and Harper, and as we as we tape, uh, we're still waiting to see where, where those guys are going to land. Um, two questions here. How much, how much do you think those guys will get in terms of years and, and dollars and how much would you expect those guys to actually be be worth over that time? I mean, is it because you're the numbers that were being bandied about for Harper prior to the 2018 season, which wasn't a great year by his standards, were in the stratosphere. Those numbers are 
not quite as high as some of the things that you were hearing a couple of years ago. What do you think ultimately uh, they're going to get, and do you think that there's a very good chance that they'll ultimately make make good on that investment that uh, a team is going to put into them? I would say in Harper's case, well, first of all, I'll, I'll, I'll say I, don't, I, have, I can't answer either question because I, I don't really have a good feel for what the investment's going to be. Um, the only thing I can really speak to is what I what I expect their performance to be, and of course that's that's I don't know how long the contracts are going to be, but I, I, I first of all I think Harper is overrated by a lot of people clearly, um, in part because of the early promise that he showed an All Star at nineteen I think, and he's had some tremendous stretches, but um, if you simply look at his just. For example, his wins above replacement over the last three seasons, which is a pretty good sample size, um, he's not anywhere near the top. So this notion that he was going to be the one who got the four hundred million dollar contract or whatever, uh, I think I, I think I saw a reference to that a year or so ago. Ten years, four hundred million. Um, uh, there, there's no reason to think that he should be the highest paid player in baseball uh, based on his his past performance. Obviously, the talent is there, but is, is he going to be healthy enough to do? He's only really done that for one whole season or two whole seasons. So, I, I I think that if he were to get that deal, it would be one of those contracts the team wound up regretting. But I'm not convinced he's going to get that deal, given the softness of the market that we've seen recently. I wouldn't be surprised if he had to settle for five years and 180 million or something, which is still a that's still pretty good money. Um, but I, I don't think that that contract those numbers we saw bandied about by people in the media and probably his agent. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Machado's a bit different because he's been more consistent than Harper. Um, but there are question marks there, too. We saw some question marks about his effort in last October, obviously. Um, it's not clear to me that he's got the – that he'll be able to continue playing shortstop um, given his body type. Not that – he can't be a great player for a long time, but um, playing shortstop in the major leagues is is um, it's a hard thing to do when you're when you're when you're as big as he is. Now he's he's done it before, and maybe he can do it for another ten years. Um, Cal Ripken certainly did it for a long time, and he was a big guy. But it's just not clear uh, what he what his body, what his 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 uh, style of play looks like ten years down the road. So I think it's tough to predict what his deal is going to look like, what his performance is going to look like. But I'm actually more optimistic about his future simply because he's been more consistent. There's a there's a really interesting quote in, in your book from Billy Bean um, uh, who said, if you can't win 90, you, you, you should lose 90. You know, meaning that room temperature is probably not a place that you want to be as a as a franchise. And, and so you go into the, the, the so-called tanking and... and and of course, when we say tanking, we think of NBA teams that basically can kind of lose on purpose. <laughs> you know, not in terms of throwing a game, but just putting a putting an outman group out there, and NBA teams can pretty much find their way into the lottery pretty easily. Baseball is a different animal, but with what the Cubs have done and 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 what the Astros have done, both on their way to to World Championships in 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 the last several years. That has sort of become, I think, an increasing mentality within baseball that you just break, you just strip it down to the bones, yep. 
and yep. then build it build it up for there, hopefully accumulating uh, a, a number one pick or two uh, uh, along the way. Uh, what do you make of that change in philosophy that we're seeing? And is is that something that other teams can use as effectively as the Cubs and Astros? Or is this a situation where you just had two franchises and the circumstances aligned for them and, and maybe it's maybe it's not a model that other teams will get as much mileage from? Well, they can't they can't all win the World Series like those teams did, right? So no, they won't get the same mileage, but it does make sense for lots of teams to do it the way the system is set up now. I personally would like to see the system changed to reward winning, to reward somehow those teams that win 83 games instead of lose 90-some or 100-some. Um, because I think it's a better experience for the fans. Um, and ultimately, uh, as I write in the book, that's who I wind up thinking about. I don't really care how much, how many millions a player makes or how many billions that the Dodgers sell for next time. Uh, what I do care about, because I've been a fan probably for 40-some uh, years now, I, I care about the fan experience um, and, and other fans' experiences. Um, and if I were a fan of one of these teams that's losing 100 games because they'll be better someday... I would get it, but I would also probably wish that there was a, 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 another way, a, a, a better way to, 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 to get to that to contention, to, a way that doesn't include losing 103 games for two or three or four years in a row like the Astros did. Um, and I think that we'll probably see something like that in the next collective bargaining. I think, I think we'll see some incentives for winning. Um, the thing about that distinguishes baseball from those other sports, the NFL and the NFL, in the NFL and the NBA, those draft picks are just incredibly important. They're not really that important in baseball. Sure, you'd love to have the number one pick, but uh, that's not how you, that isn't how the, the, the Cubs got to where they are. It helped. It isn't how the, the Astros got to where they are. I mean, it, again, it helped, but that's not really the secret to their success. They did a lot of other things well, too. Um, and the reason that you don't want to be chasing 80 wins isn't because you, you, you're not going to get a high draft pick if you win 80 games. It just economically, it doesn't help you to win 80 games. So you're spending money to win 80 games. The fans aren't excited by 80 wins. They don't show up. So you're basically throwing money away. Um, and not getting anything back for it. Um, so they figure, well, shoot, we'll just lose 100. We, we'll save that money. We'll husband those resources. Or we'll spend it on international prospects. Or actually, you can't really do that anymore either. We'll spend them on uh, building a better academy. Or we'll spend it on uh, a supercomputer. Or hiring 10 people for our analytics department. I mean, there are lots of ways to spend money. The, the, those ways have, have changed. Um, and to some degree, they've been limited over the last five, or, five years or so by the new draft rules and international signing rules. But there are ways to spend money that don't involve going out and buying a free agent in the offseason. 
Well, in terms of that fan experience, um, I'll, I'll kind of wrap up with this. You identify in the book a lot of really important issues that are facing the game now, and and some of them, as we have discussed during the course of this podcast, are are, are troubling to, to to one degree or another in in some manner or another. If if you had just the unilateral power to to change a handful of things about the game looking forward from a fan experience uh, perspective, what would be a couple or three things that, that you would put at the top of your list? Okay, so here's three easy ones. Um, actually, this isn't easy, but I would commission a study, spend some real money, hire some really smart people, and figure out how to lower the strikeouts and get more batted balls in play. Uh, there's some combination of altering the strike zone and lowering or moving the mound that would accomplish that. I just don't know what that combination is. Um, but it would not be that difficult to figure out. Um, and there's a long history of making moves exactly like that in baseball and without even knowing what would happen. Just people saying, well, gosh, in, in 69 they just said, we had not enough hitting last last season, so we're going to drop the mound by six inches or whatever it was. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't. They didn't do any any studies. They just did it. They just tried it, and it worked. I wouldn't recommend doing that again because you don't have to. Now you have all this incredible data and all these brilliant people working in and around baseball. Why not at least study it? But they don't even do that. So that would be number one. Um, I certainly would would come up with a. a, a rigid time limit between pitches. Again, this is not that difficult. You just have to have some rules and stick to them. Uh, the players have to cooperate. And uh, I would lift all those re- idiotic blackout rules that prevent someone in Las Vegas from watching a Dodgers. The book is Powerball, and it's available online. It's available at fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, as they say, the, the author is Rob Nyer, one of the one of the best baseball writers out there uh, and, and has been for a very long time. Rob, thank you for coming back on the podcast, and i got to wish you a, a, a great West Coast League season this year. Oh, I appreciate that, uh, and uh, I continue to uh, appreciate all the work you do, Ricky. Thanks for, thanks for all of that. I, I smile every single day, but thanks to you. Big thanks to Rob Nyer for being on the show again. You know, he's tolerated me not just once, he's tolerated me twice now, and that makes him a friend of the podcast indeed. And certainly a very deserving winner of that 2018 Casey Award, Powerball is a terrific book, and it's one that you ought to have on your shelf. My guess next time, well, let me put it to you this way. You know, back in the 1970s and 80s, if you ever watched professional wrestling, sometimes they wouldn't announce one of the combatants. They would just say that there was going to be a mystery man, and you're going to have to come out to the arena and see who it is. Well... This is kind of what we're doing this time. I've got an idea who the next guest might be, but I'm not going to reveal it right now. You're going to have to tune in. i got a couple of people on the line, and I don't know which one I'm going to tape the podcast first. So we're going to leave it as a surprise, but I can tell you right now, all the options that I'm currently choosing from are primo. So with that said... You're going to have to trust me that the next episode is going to be great, but hey, the first 50 were pretty freaking good, right? This is Ricky Cobb reminding you to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.